Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Uh, welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown here in the Dark Poutine studios in Langley. With me, as usual, from Vancouver is Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. Here I am in the Dark Poutine satellite office. That's right. <laughs> the Dark Poutine satellite office. Now I see that there's a lot of board games behind you and no longer any books. Yes, Justin wanted a board game wall, so there it is. Yeah, so everyone, just so everyone knows, we might can see me have a camera on. Yeah. I cleared out my bookshelf for Justin's I'm, I bet you there's like $5,000 worth of bloody games there. <laughs> there is a lot of games. Oh, boy. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Patine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to Dark Poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. On July 3, 1884, the Daily Colonist newspaper in BC reported the capture of Jacko, described as a human-like creature resembling a gorilla near Yale in that province. Some Bigfoot enthusiasts later cited this story as evidence for Sasquatch's existence. The tale gained prominence and drew much speculation from only a single story reprinted in numerous newspapers. Jacko's story has been featured in various books, documentaries, and television shows. Other articles from 1884 dismissed the story as a possible hoax 
yet some continue to believe he did exist. This is Dark Poutine episode 290, Spooktober 4, Fact or Fiction, Jacko the Ape Boy from Yale, B.C. British Columbia's majestic landscape, a realm of towering trees and mist-shrouded mountains, has always been a fertile ground for myths and legends. Among these, the enigmatic feature of Sasquatch stands out, casting a long shadow over the region's collective imagination. For many indigenous peoples, particularly the Stalus First Nation, Sasquatch is far more than the popular cultural icon known as Bigfoot. It's deeply rooted in cultural narratives and ancestral tales. The term Sasquatch that's widely recognized today is believed to be an anglicization of Sasquets, a word used by the Halkomalem language spoken by several First Nations groups, including the Stalus in the Fraser Valley and the lower mainland of British Columbia. The term refers to a supernatural being, a wild man of the woods embodying both human and creature-like characteristics. Descriptions of Sasquatch often involve a tall, hirsute, bipedal creature with immense strength. However, its cultural significance extends far beyond physical descriptions. For the Stalus and others, Sasquatch is not just a mysterious forest dweller, but often a guardian of the wilderness, a protector of sacred places, and sometimes a harbinger or omen. While some may hold literal belief in Sasquatch as a physical entity or guardian of the woods, others might see the being as symbolic, representing concepts like respect for nature, the unknown, or ancestral wisdom. The legend of Sasquatch continues today, especially as European settlers began relaying their own tales of their encounters with unidentified bipedal creatures. Sasquatch remains an important cultural figure for indigenous communities representing a connection to the land and their ancestors. In the 1880s, British Columbia was a region undergoing rapid transformation, driven largely by a series of gold rushes and the monumental construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway, CPR. The area around Yale in particular stood at the heart of these developments. Beginning in the late 1850s and extending into the 1860s, the Fraser Canyon Gold Rush brought a massive influx of prospectors and settlers to the region. Yale became a primary supply point for these miners given its strategic location on the Fraser River. The Gold Rush set the stage for further exploration and development in BC during the 1880s. The construction of the CPR in the late 19th century is a significant chapter in Canada's history. The project aimed to connect the vast country from coast to coast, ensuring British Columbia's entry into the Canadian Confederation. The railway's construction was massive, requiring the piercing of rugged terrains, including the challenging Rocky Mountains. Chinese laborers were instrumental in the railway's construction, especially in B.C. Hiring Chinese workers was primarily economical as they were paid less than white workers, about half as much. By the mid-1880s, it's estimated that over 15,000 Chinese workers were employed on the CPR, mainly in B.C. The work conditions were treacherous. Chinese workers faced numerous hardships, including grueling labor, unsafe conditions, and a harsh climate. They were often assigned the most dangerous tasks, such as handling explosives to blast pathways through solid rock. The consequence was a high death toll, with estimates suggesting that at least four Chinese laborers died for every mile of track. 
Many of these deaths went unrecorded or were not properly investigated. Workers faced landslides, dynamite accidents, and diseases with minimal medical care available. While the railway's completion in 1885 was celebrated as a national achievement, the Chinese community's sacrifices went largely unrecognized for decades. A monument in Yale now honors the Chinese workers who contributed to the CPR's construction. It serves as a poignant reminder of the sacrifices made by the Chinese community's crucial role in shaping Canada's history. The story of Chinese railway workers has been added to many Canadian educational curriculums, ensuring future generations understand and appreciate their role in the nation's development. With the railway's construction and residual effects of the gold rush, the area near Yale experienced economic diversification. Trade, logging, and services to support the growing population became essential. However, this growth also led to conflicts between newcomers and indigenous communities like the Nalakapamux Nation, whose traditional territories were impacted. The era witnessed the establishment of more permanent settlements, roads, and other infrastructures around Yale. The influx of people and the establishment of the CPR made communication and transportation between BC's interior and the coast more accessible. Toward the late 1880s, as the CPR's primary route shifted away from Yale and further into the BC interior, the town's prominence started to wane. Other communities, better situated along the new main line, began flourishing, reducing Yale's significance in the broader provincial context. So, Mike, as you know, I'm here in our Yale Town office. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and uh, did you know that my neighborhood, Yale Town, actually was named after Yale? Yale, the Ivy League University. No, no. The town you're talking about. So essentially, they moved all of the like construction and different building and stuff like that center from Yale to what is now Yale Town. And there is a, a line from here to Yale. So they, they call this neighborhood Yale Town. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. And you've seen the train in the roundhouse? Yes. So that's CPR Engine 374. It's the first ever passenger train to roll into Vancouver from across the country. And the, the town has done these, these really cool... Walk with me someday and I'll show you. you. You'll be walking sort of through some grass in a park and there'll suddenly be like a path that's railroad ties and tracks. Cool. And then you have the huge round... I call it the Stargate in front of my building because it looks like Stargate, but it's actually repurposed huge cog from the roundhouse where they it would like turn the trains around. So yeah, Yale Town's named after this town. That's very cool. Yeah. Yale's prominence was at its height when on July 3rd, 1884, a daily British colonist newspaper story claimed a strange creature had been captured just outside the town after a harrowing chase by railway employees. The article, titled, What Is It?, tells a wild tale. I'll paraphrase the article here, as the article's language is antiquated and a bit clunky. The story goes that rocky cliffs were considered impassable near the number 4 train tunnel about 20 miles from Yale. However, that Monday, these cliffs were climbed by a group of railway workers comprised of men mostly from nearby Lytton. They were after something they'd seen. While the Lytton train approached the cliff near the number 4 tunnel, engineer Ned Austin spotted what he initially thought was a human on the tracks. Swiftly, he signaled for the train to stop some distance away from the figure. Suddenly, perhaps realizing it had been spotted, the creature leapt up, 
producing a sharp bark, and began scaling the cliff. Conductor R.J. Craig, along with a few others, quickly gave chase. After considerable trouble climbing and great risk to their lives while pursuing the, the creature, after about five minutes, the men finally cornered the thing described in the article as half-man, half-beast, on a rock ledge, leaving him with no root up or down. Conductor Craig ingeniously threw a rock to momentarily startle the creature, enabling his team to secure it and transport him back to the waiting train at the ground level. Once Jacko was secured, tied up, the train continued to yell. They called their new passenger Jacko. Jacko appeared gorilla-like, standing roughly 4 feet 7 inches tall, that's about 140 centimeters, and weighing 127 pounds, 58 kilograms. His appearance was somewhat human, except for the one-inch glossy fur covering his body, save for his hands and feet. Notably, his forearms were much longer than a human's. Demonstrating impressive strength, Jacko could snap a stick by twisting it in ways impossible for a typical human being. On arrival at Yale, a large gathering awaited. Having been informed of the discovery via telephone when the train stopped at Spuzzum Flats... <laughs> they were disappointed to find out that Jacko had been taken off the train at the machine shops around three-quarters of a mile outside of town, and he was no longer aboard. He was then allegedly in the care of a man named George Tilbury. Spasm Flats always makes me giggle. Yeah. I picture a huge neon sign in front of a multi-story brothel. Welcome to Spasm Flats. Oh, dear. It sounds like another word for jism. <laughs> Ah, moving forward. <laughs> Since being caught, he remained mostly silent, occasionally making a noise that's part bark, part growl. As the days passed, he became more accustomed to his new surroundings. Plans were in motion to transport him to London for exhibition. He showed a preference for berries and enjoyed fresh milk. A local doctor named Hannington was the only notable official associated with the story. He had, at Tilbury's insistence, examined Jacko. The doctor apparently recommended that Jacko not be given raw meats, fearing it might evoke aggression in the until-then passive creature. The mystery surrounding Jacko's appearance and presence in the area became the talk of the town. The article indicates that the circumstances that led to Jacko being spotted by Mr. Austin at that particular location remain speculative. Given the evident injuries on Jacko's body, he had cuts and bruises on his arms, legs, and head. It was theorized that the creature might have inadvertently ventured too close to the edge of a cliff, slipped, and fallen onto the tracks. He might have been lying there possibly dazed or in pain until the approaching train's noise stirred him. There had apparently been prior sightings of ape-like creatures in the area. Mr. Thomas White, Mr. Gouin, C.E., and Mr. Major, who had been running a small store near the tunnel for a couple of years, had previously reported sightings of a similar peculiar being in the vicinity between railway construction camps 13 and 17. However, the locals had largely dismissed or overlooked these claims, assuming the men might have mistaken a wild bear or perhaps a large stray dog for the creature they described. That singular article in the newspaper concluded with questions asked in the typically racist language of the time. Quote, Who can unravel the mystery that now surrounds Jacko? Does he belong to a species hitherto unknown in this part of the continent? Or is he really what the trainmen first thought he was, a crazy Indian? End quote. 
There was no further follow-up in the daily British colonist newspaper, even though the story had been widely distributed throughout Canada and the United States. Subsequent brief stories came from other publications. On July 9th, the mainland Guardian claimed the story was so much hogwash, they said it never happened. Rumors spread around Yale that Jacko was being kept at the local jail. A newspaper article published in the Columbian on July 12th indicated that a mob of more than 200 locals arrived demanding to see Jacko. It was left to the frustrated jail's governor, Mr. Mosby, to turn them away, telling him that the creature was not being held there. That was it. Other than a few brief mentions in other papers, that was the whole story. If Jacko was real, what the heck was he and what became of him? According to Christopher L. Murphy in his book Sasquatch in B.C., A Chronology of Incidents and Important Events, in the 1950s, Sasquatch investigators delved deeply into that incident reported in The Daily Colonist. Their research verified that the individuals named in the article genuinely existed, meaning the names weren't made up. While they encountered individuals in Yale with either personal memories or tales passed down from family members about the event, no one had directly witnessed Jacko. It's worth noting that if one had visited the machine shops, they would have had the opportunity to see him. Furthermore, whether Tilbury would have permitted anyone besides Dr. Hannington to view the creature is still in question. Murphy goes on to share that also in 1884, an ape boy was, was allegedly showcased in Vancouver. Alan Neal, a renowned First Nation carver, later relayed that Chief August Jack Cozzolano informed her about the creature's presence at Burrard Inlet in Vancouver, even claiming he'd personally witnessed it. Again, there are no newspaper stories or other writing to verify this story as anything more than hearsay or fantasy. As more proof, Murphy also cites Annie York, a historian of the Spuzzum First Nation, who shared the story of a Sasquatch being accidentally killed near Spuzzum, which is close to Yale, around 1884. The tale was shared with Annie by one of her elders and then published in her book, Spuzzum, Fraser Canyon Histories, 1808-1939. And we've referred to that story in a previous episode. To paraphrase, Chief Patek governed the region up to Five Mile Creek, during the time the CPR was constructing its track through this locality, a construction camp was established near the long tunnel above Spuzzum. The contractors noticed frequent thefts from their outdoor meat house. Two cowboys devised a plan, using a long rope, and kept vigil one night. A Sasquatch soon approached the meat house. Seeing an opportunity, the cowboys lassoed it. Unfortunately, the rope tightened around its neck, causing it to leap, snap its neck, and die. An indigenous person from a nearby reservation discovered the dead Sasquatch and reported it to Chief Patek. Donning his weasel robe and carrying his beautifully decorated buckskin banners, Chief Patek, accompanied by his warriors, approached the construction camp. Through an interpreter, they learned of the cowboy's intent to bury the creature. Chief Patek demanded the body as the indigenous community held Sasquatches in high reverence, considering them human. The chief believed Sasquatches originated from those who, in their youth, went into the mountains to train as medicine men. Left in isolation with minimal sustenance, some of these young individuals became wild and never returned, supposedly becoming Sasquatches. Respecting this belief, Chief Patek blessed the creature's body and gave it a proper human burial in Spuzzum. 
Some believe, as indicated in the original article, that Jacko was shipped to England, or perhaps to the United States, where he was sold. According to Ivan T. Sanderson's book, Abominable Snowmen, Legend Come to Life, a being was undeniably captured and held in captivity for a period, as evidenced by a 1946 interview with an elderly man in Lytton, B.C., who recalled seeing it. While the creature was not entirely human, it bore more resemblance to humans than to any other species. Given that it was captured along the Fraser River, questions arise regarding its origin and true nature. One story considered that Jacko could have been a chimpanzee escaped from a circus. Whether people of the day had ever seen even a photo of a chimpanzee is unclear. As with many tales with some unknown elements, various theories emerged over time, often with massive holes in the beliefs. One such speculation is that Jacko might have been the infamous Jojo the Dog-Faced Boy, a famous attraction in P.T. Barnum's circus. Jojo, whose real name was Fedor Jeftichu, suffered from hypertrichosis, which causes abnormal hair growth all over the body. He became a notable attraction in various circuses, including P.T. Barnum's during the late 19th century. His appearance, with a face covered in hair, led to the moniker Dog-Faced Boy. The theory or speculation that Jacko might have been Jojo relies primarily on the time frame and some perceived similarities in descriptions. The Jacko story emerged in the 1880s, a time when Jojo was already an attraction in P.T. Barnum's circus. Some proponents of the theory argue that descriptions of Jacko, a human-like creature covered in hair, could match that of a person with hypertrichosis. However, several reasons debunk this theory. Jojo was a known and identified individual with a medical condition. Jacko's story is shrouded in mystery, and the descriptions, although vague, suggest a creature more akin to a primate than a human. Jojo's life and appearances were well documented. When Jacko was supposedly captured in B.C., Jojo was touring with the circus. There are no records or indications of Jojo going missing or being in British Columbia during this period. There were physical differences, too. The descriptions of Jacko, such as his strength and some of his physical features, do not align with what one would expect from a person, even one with hypertrichosis. Given the lack of concrete evidence and the differing narratives of the two stories, most historians and researchers dismiss the idea that Jacko was Jojo. The mystery of Jacko remains unsolved, with some suggesting it might have been a hoax or a misidentified animal, while others believe there might be some grain of truth in the old tales. Other circuses and sideshows were running in North America then. Jacko could have been sold off to one of those. If he was not human, perhaps he was something else. We'll dig into more theories and speculation about Jacko after a quick break. And this, the promo for Supernatural Circumstances. Hey Dark Poutine listeners, Mike here. Are you ready to dive deep into the mysteries of the supernatural? Join me and award-winning paranormal researcher Morgan Knudsen as we dissect chilling phenomena on Supernatural Circumstances. From spine-tingling hauntings to creepy cryptids and other paranormal subjects, we'll be your guides on this extraordinary journey. We're in Season 2 right now, so there are plenty of episodes for you to catch up on. Buckle up and explore the unknown with us and numerous expert guests. Download Supernatural Circumstances wherever you podcast.
And we are back. Matthew, thoughts so far? <laughs> so do you know what my friend Rocky calls me? No. Rocky is the guy we went to rugby with, right? Yeah. Yeah. So my roof deck, it's on the 40th floor. Yes. In the winter, it can get quite windy up here, right? Mm-hmm. One time in the middle of the night, I hear this noise on my roof, and I run up naked onto the roof. Uh-oh. And my trees have blown over and like the big pots are like rolling around. And here I am in like a wind and rainstorm naked fighting with the tree. And I told Rocky this, this story and, and he goes, you're an urban Sasquatch. Oh, dear. <laughs> so he calls me urban Sasquatch now. So you are Jacko of Yale Town. <laughs> I'm Jacko of Yale Town, the urban oh. Sasquatch. I'm always curious about what you think and we'll get into it at the end of the show about what you think jacko actually was if he even existed mm -hmm. we'll get into that sasquatch researcher john willison green weighed in on jacko in his 1978 book sasquatch the apes among us as green was local to me born in chilliwack and had done much of his research near harrison bc i've been long interested in his work he was a well-loved and much-respected figure in the area and had previously been mayor of Agassiz and Harrison Hot Springs before he passed away at the age of 89 in Chilliwack. Green was known for his varied life, which included roles as a journalist, Sasquatch researcher, and community leader. He moved to Agassiz in 1954 after purchasing the Agassiz-Harrison Advance newspaper. His journalistic background included work at the Toronto Globe and Mail, Vancouver Province, and the Victoria Colonist. Green's interest in the Sasquatch was piqued in 1958 when the village of Harrison Hot Springs proposed a Sasquatch hunt as a BC Centennial project. This led Green to investigate numerous sightings, interview witnesses, and even write several books on the subject. His works include On the Track of the Sasquatch, Year of the Sasquatch, and The Sasquatch File. There's a bit of a theme here. His dedication to the topic made him a respected figure in both local and international Sasquatch research communities. Beyond his Sasquatch research, Green was a multifaceted individual. He was an avid boat builder, a loving family man with 13 grandchildren and 12 great-grandchildren, and a community leader. He served on the Harrison Hot Springs Village Council and even initiated the building of the beach and lagoon. Green was instrumental in bringing the International Sand Sculpture Competition to Harrison Beach. It's very cool. I've been there. And played a key role in the preservation of local history, including efforts to have the Kilby Historic Museum declared a historical site. It sounds like he was um, instrumental in bringing tourism to the area. And maybe that's sort of part of the, his driving force sort of behind Sasquatch books. Mm-hmm sort of perpetuating that myth in order to, you know, come visit. Sure, that was probably part of the motivation. That makes sense. Yeah. As far as what I can glean from what I've read, Green was definitely a believer. Interesting. At least publicly, that's how he presented himself. Okay. Yeah, maybe that's the thing. I don't know what his private thoughts were, but publicly he presented himself as a believer. My brother and nephew believe in Sasquatch. I am well aware of that, and so I'm, I'm thinking your brother will probably really enjoy this episode, uh, say, save for your parts. Shout out to Andy and Angus. Andy and Angus. Uncle Matthew is not a believer. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, we can have that perspective here as well. 
<laughs> you know what he calls my my husband? Justin? Uncle Juice. Uncle Juice. Oh, that's it, funny. It started when he was a little kid, and, and he still uses it sometimes. It's so cute. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I've been to the Kilby Museum twice, and one of those was recently during the planning of this episode. It's fascinating to see firsthand the plaster casts taken by Green and other Bigfoot researchers. One particularly interesting exhibit is a pair of sneakers attached to what appears to be concrete forms used to hoax Sasquatch footprints. It's worth a peek if you're in the area. The staff at the site is friendly, and at least one, Teresa Main, is a fan of the show and took a photo with me that she posted in our Facebook group, The Umberyard. Thanks, Teresa. Green found it curious that there had been only sparse coverage of the alleged capture of Jacko. Green indicates that perhaps it is because these accounts did not survive as all the archives of newspapers in B.C. at the time were destroyed by a fire at the new Westminster building where they'd been stored. Another reason indicated by Green for the lack of coverage was the serious illness of the only reporter in the area at the time of Jacko's capture. Years before the publication of his 1978 book, Green spoke with one indigenous man named August Castle, who was a young boy in Yale at the time and had heard about Jacko. But he'd never seen Jacko, as the creature was allegedly being held by white men in another part of the town. Green discovered what he calls indirect stories of Jacko passed down over the years told by descendants of those living near Yale in 1884. One was in a letter obtained by Green written in 1970 to Dr. Grover Krantz by a game guide from Clinton, B.C. named Chilko Choate. Choate claimed that his ailing father shared with him a story that his own father had recounted before his passing. Choate wrote that his grandfather worked as the B&B engineer, buildings and bridges, for the CPR during its construction west of Revelstoke. There's a minor train stop near Yale named in his honor, Choate, B.C. After the completion of the CPR, he took on the role of a circuit judge for the county court of Yale, though the exact duration of his tenure as a judge isn't clear. He was present when the creature, referred to as an ape by their father, was brought to and housed in Yale. This ape remained in Yale until its owner transported it in a crate on a train bound for the east. Rumor has it that the owner intended to exhibit the creature in London, England, hoping to profit significantly. However, the story concludes with the creature's fate remaining unknown. Both Choate's grandfather and the father speculated that the ape may have died during the journey, with the former suspecting Jacko could have been buried at sea. Green received a letter from Hilary Foskett from Euclid, B.C. Her mother had lived in Yale at the time Jacko was allegedly captured. In her letter, Miss Foskett said, quote, When the stories of the Yeti and Sasquatch appeared in the press, Mother recalled stories of Jacko at Yale. She was probably eight or nine when she started school there, and local inhabitants were still talking about the wild man, and the good sisters at the school took care in shepherding the pupils from school to chapel or church. In spite of this local fear, in her later years at school, Mother climbed Mount Leakey behind Yale with a group of young people. Until well in her 80s, she could recall her Yale days in detail, but before her death at 93 a year ago, her memory was slipping. The Dr. Hannington referred to was well known to mother and her sisters, end quote. Again, lots of second and third hand stories, but nothing direct. Another famous writer, John A. Keel, best known for his book, The Mothman Prophecies, 
also wrote about Jacko's story in his book, Strange Creatures from Time and Space. Keel writes that in 1946, a journalist in Canada spoke with an older man in Lytton, British Columbia, who said he'd witnessed a creature. Additionally, individuals like Mr. Alexander Caulfield Anderson from the Hudson's Bay Company reported sightings as early as 1864. Keel also mentions Ivan T. Sanderson's comprehensive book, Abominable Snowman, Legend Come to Life, that delves deeply into these accounts, emphasizing the abundance of indigenous myths and tales about such creatures in North America. Stories of women being taken by these things, bearing their children, are prevalent in these narratives. Remarkably, similar tales can be found in numerous cultures. Some researchers hypothesize that throughout history, humans might have interbred with these hairy creatures. In the Bible, for instance, Esau, in Genesis 25, 19-34, is depicted as being red all over like a hairy garment. Keel goes on to mention how European literature from earlier times is rife with mentions of wild men of the woods, allegedly dwelling in the thick forests of countries like England, France, and Germany. These beings were described as tall, covered in hair, and possessed incredible agility. As per Irish folklore mentioned in The Bestiary, these woodland beings lived in rudimentary underground shelters, subsisted on plant-based diets, and resisted interaction with other humans. Regardless of how well they were approached, they remained resistant to societal norms and conventions. Ireland, in particular, was said to have a vast population of them. Keel suggests historical European accounts of these wild men indicated they had an intense sexual drive, often assaulting solitary women traveling through the woods. These accounts might be the origins of legends about satyrs, which contemporary depictions have inaccurately portrayed with cloven hooves. Given the similar tales among American indigenous populations, there might be some truth underlying these myths. Maybe the whole Jacko affair was a hoax, as some suggest. Journalistic hoaxes during the 19th and early 20th centuries were not an uncommon phenomenon, with various motivations fueling their occurrences. One of the most notable was the Great Moon Hoax of 1835. Published by the New York Sun, this series of articles claimed the discovery of life on the moon, with vivid descriptions of bat-winged humanoids, unicorns, and even bipedal beavers the articles claimed these creatures were observed by Sir John Herschel through a mighty telescope. The motivation behind this sensational revelation was primarily to boost the newspaper's circulation and readership. Another intriguing hoax from the 19th century was the tale of the Cardiff Giant. Unearthed in 1869, in Cardiff, New York, this 10-foot-tall petrified man gripped the nation's attention. However, it was later revealed that this ancient relic was nothing more than a carefully planted gypsum statue. This ruse was orchestrated for both personal amusement and the potential financial windfall from exhibiting the giant. Fast forward to the 20th century as we encounter the infamous War of the Worlds broadcast in 1938. Orchestrated by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre, this radio adaptation of H.G. Wells' iconic novel was mistaken by some of its listeners as a real-time account of a Martian invasion. Although intended purely as entertainment, the realistic portrayal led some listeners to believe they were hearing actual news leading to widespread panic in certain areas. Lastly, the 20th century also witnessed the scandal of the Hitler Diaries in 1983. The reputable German magazine Stern announced with great fanfare that they had acquired the diaries of Adolf Hitler. 
These documents, however, were later unmasked as forgeries. Stern's eagerness to secure this supposed monumental journalistic scoop overshadowed the necessary verification processes, demonstrating the pressures of competition in the media industry. The motivations behind these hoaxes varied. The reasons were many, from the economic incentives of boosting newspaper sales and readership in a highly competitive market to personal notoriety for the journalists or hoaxers involved. At times, the sheer pleasure derived from deceiving the public or drive to be the first to break a significant story led journalists to either craft or fall for such hoaxes. The evolving journalistic standards of the time, combined with limited and slower means of fact-checking, made the media of the 19th and early 20th centuries especially vulnerable to such deceptions. Back then, you couldn't really fact-check, really, right? No. And I, I think this actually helps to remind us the importance of, of being skeptical when you're, having, when you're in media consumption today. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, willingness to accept stories like this, to me, yeah, and I'm going to share it. You know, I, I'm a non-believer in most of these things. And for me, it shows lack of critical thinking and a tendency to trust sources. And, and I think... Today, even more than ever, with the internet and social media and AI and misinformation, this stuff can mm-hmm. spend even faster. And, you know, I think even, even Meredith, my friend Murr, remember we had her on an after show once? Right, yeah, yeah. What she's realized, part of her job as a contemporary professor is to help her young students with media literacy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we grew up in an era where there was these trusted newsmen on on <laughs> and they were men right <laughs> right they were all men yeah but they these trusted newsmen on at seven or eight o'clock in the evening on abc and and cbc and all these places where it was like the, if this person says it's true it was true and and everyone tuned into like f- maximum three different news outlets yep yeah yeah, it was, it's kind of interesting. But I think critical thinking means you can be willing to believe in something that's a little fantastic, but also willing to hear arguments to the contrary, and also willing to take on board uh, different opinions, different facts from different places. So I'm not saying alternative facts, because there may be more than one set of facts. I don't think I have to take on other opinions but i'll but i'll listen to other facts maybe what i should have said is entertain opinions not take them on Mm -hmm. because i'm entertaining them i'm listening to them and whether i agree with them or not is another thing but have i actually listened to what the person said and tried to uh see maybe any validity in what they have to say (laughs) yeah and i but i also tend to be you know, I work in I work in marketing, and I, mm-hmm. I I like to look at data and to figure out what's going on. So you BS people for a living. Truth well told, Mike. Truth yeah. well told. Sure, exactly. And um, I'm I'm willing to entertain any ideas, mm-hmm. but but if somebody wants me to believe in something, I yeah. say show me the empirical evidence. You are you are a very a stubborn person when it comes to that kind of thing. So either that, I'm just realistic. Okay. 
Jacko's story could be an excellent example of a well-thought-out journalistic hoax, especially in its use of verifiable individuals, as this lends a sense of authenticity and credibility to fabricated stories. When a respected or widely recognized figure is referenced, readers or listeners may be more likely to believe the narrative, thinking if such a reputable person is involved, then the story must be genuine. This tactic blurs the lines between fact and fiction, making the hoax more challenging to debunk initially. The emotional resonance of real names, especially those of celebrities or notable local figures, ensures that the audience remains deeply engaged, leading the story to be more memorable and widely discussed. Hoaxers exploit the public's existing trust in these figures or institutions, therefore capitalizing on the pre-established trust. Furthermore, such stories involving real people tend to gain more traction, offering a boost to a publication's readership or ratings. The real elements of the story, such as the involvement of actual persons, can be used as a diversion to deflect from the fabricated parts. By tying a hoax to current events through the mention of real persons, the story's relevance to the contemporary news cycle is heightened, increasing its chances of being disseminated by other media outlets. However, the use of real names, while beneficial in the short form, poses long-term risks. Exposure of the hoax could lead to legal action by the individuals named or a public denunciation with significant consequences for the hoax's perpetrators and their affiliated media entities. Perhaps the paper was only printing what it was told and the hoaxers were the people mentioned. The people in the story never, at a media level at least, confirmed or denied their involvement after the initial article. The motivations behind this kind of hoax, like many deceptive endeavors, can be multifaceted and vary based on the individual or group perpetrating the hoax. Firstly, there's the allure of notoriety and attention. In a world where sensational stories often garner significant media coverage, claiming to have evidence of Bigfoot can thrust an individual into the limelight, even if only temporarily. Such notoriety can translate into financial gain either directly through the sale of alleged evidence or indirectly through associated ventures like book deals, television appearances, or speaking engagements. Secondly, there's the thrill of deception. Some individuals enjoy concocting elaborate hoaxes for the sheer pleasure of fooling the public and experts alike. Successfully deceiving a wide audience can offer a sense of intellectual superiority for the hoaxer. However, there are those who might start with genuine beliefs or experiences, but upon realizing the challenges in providing concrete evidence, might resort to fabrications to validate their claims. This could stem from a desire to avoid public skepticism or to solidify their personal experiences. Furthermore, there's the cultural and social aspect. In communities where legends of fantastic creatures are prevalent, being the individual or group that finally has proof can offer a certain elevated status. Lastly, some might engage in such hoaxes simply for amusement, to gauge public reaction, or as a social experiment. For example, more than 50 years ago, the Parker Road Phantom, a mysterious humanoid figure, was spotted repeatedly on Parker Road in my birth mom's hometown of Berwick, Nova Scotia. The sightings caused a sensation that attracted media and increased traffic. Even the previously mentioned John A. Keel wrote about the Phantom in his previously mentioned book, Strange Creatures from Space and Time. 
The phenomenon, it later turned out, was the work of five boys, Billy, Ronnie, David, Tom Gates, and Dickie Taylor. As a part of a prank to scare their grandparents, they used an old army jacket, hat, and nylon stocking to create the phantom's face. Their initial act was startling Mrs. Gates by knocking on her door, revealing Billy's disguised visage. Their escapades led to many thrilling encounters. Once the phantom startled four women in a convertible, leading them to panic until they sped away. On another occasion, David had to hide from two shotgun-wielding men. Tom recounted the challenge of keeping their act a secret, especially since their residence on Parker Road made them the prime subjects of school discussions. By April 1969, the boys confessed their antics to the police. As their intentions were harmless, they faced no legal consequences. Tom reminisced about the aftermath, mentioning their participation in the Berwick Gala Day Parade with a float featuring the Phantom. Regardless of the motivations, Bigfoot hoaxes, like other deceptive practices, tap into the human fascination with the unknown and the broader quest to understand our world. So, was Jacko fact or fiction? Who knows? But it sure is a fun story to ponder. So Matthew, Jacko, complete fabrication or was there something? It would be fun to have a little monkey boy named Jacko running around. Right. Um, but I think it was probably uh, somebody making up a fun story. You think? Yeah. Yeah. I, I If it was real... And I, I kind of believe the same thing. But if it was real, um, what about the theory that it was a chimpanzee or something that these guys had never, ever seen before? You, you know what I mean? Like, maybe it was a chimp that escaped a train that was passing, and that's why it was laying there on the tracks. If you'd never seen a monkey before, mm -hmm. it would be a very weird experience to see a monkey. <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> like, it, it, it like if you'd never seen a photo if you never had one described right right it would be very weird to see a monkey That'd like be, what the heck is that thing imagine seeing a giraffe have, giraffe never seen a photo or being told of a giraffe before right but with a monkey it's even more bizarre because it kind of looks like us maybe it was maybe it was a chimpanzee maybe they figured out it was a chimpanzee and that's why the story died i don't know it could have been any number of things. It was just like, oh, we look like an idiot because it's a chimpanzee, so let's shut up about this. Now I feel bad for the chimpanzee. Right, because they threw a rock at it and stunned it. I know. These poor... and also, when you're telling this story, you know, you know what made me kind of like think, wow, that's weird, is back then, when, mm -hmm. people, when people saw sort of you know, natural phenomena or beasts of some sort it's like let's go get them let's kill it <laughs> it's, instead of just like okay i saw this weird thing cool right it's like no let's go get yeah. it <laughs> yeah it's time to kill that thing <laughs> anyway that's it for dark poutine episode 290 spooktober factor fiction jacko the ape boy from yale bc next week we're gonna be back again but this time it will be uh, Spooktober number five, good lord, that we've done five of these kind of episodes, but this one will be our sixth anniversary and our Halloween episode. So, and it's a little, um, it's true crime, but there's some dark stuff and there's a weird creature in it. And, uh, it's one that I was really 
contemplating for a very long time. So I'm interested in it. We're going to play some voicemails here really quickly. But what we would like, what would be awesome to help us celebrate is some listener participation. So we'd love for you folks to call in with very short, happy anniversary, happy Halloween wishes for the show. Tell us who you are and where you're from and give us a quick sentence or two of congratulations and then tell us to go shit in our hats. We want a lot of these, but only one per listener, so please give it your best. We'll play as many as we can, as long as they're awesome. The phone number is one 327 5786 and it's toll-free, I think, for people in North America and Canada. I don't know about outside. So please call and participate, but be nice. Nasty voicemails will go directly into the virtual trash. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Oh boy, Matthew, we are back for some voicemails. You you are just bouncing to our uh, intro there. I love that bass, that jazzy music. It's fun. It's really fun. Anyway. Dun, dun. <laughs> Let's listen to our first voicemail. Hey, Mike and Matthew. It's uh, Linnea here from Black Falls, Alberta. Uh, just wanted to say thank you guys for having such an amazing uh, group on Facebook um, and all the sub groups that go with that. Um, the outreach and support that all the fellow good eggs out there have given me since having to put my penny down has been amazing. Um, kind of gotten me through it, so I kind of have to thank all of y'all for that. Um, and for you two guys for making that possible. Um, also, I'd like to say that uh, this week's episode uh, about all the cryptids and the the lore and all that, it was really entertaining and I really enjoyed listening to all of it. It was quite funny and especially the frog farts um, which <laughs> I immediately had to go Google whether or not amphibians could fart and therefore share my findings in the Yumber Yard. So I am hope hope I made some people laugh today with that post. Um, I know you guys sure had me laughing today. And again, uh, I appreciate all that you guys do. And I hope that you guys had a real fun time making that episode because it sure sounded like you did. Um, yeah, so... Uh, Go shit in your hat, um, but not really. Like I mean, you know, it it sounds rude, but it's in in here it's the inside joke. So, uh, yeah, have fun. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Thanks. <laughs> That's so <laughs> funny. I, I I brought I brought up the frog parts. I didn't know we had this voicemail. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, yeah. Well, we appreciate that, and that's what the, those groups are for. They're not to talk about the show, really. They're to talk about uh, things that are going on for folks. They're for people who enjoy listening to the show. And to look at my memes. To look at Matthew's memes. Just a sec. Was that your cat? No, something, well, the cat was in here the other day and tipped something over. I had to adjust. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, let's listen to another voicemail. Hello, Kelsey, Kansas here, your neighbor from downstairs in the United States. I discovered your podcast a couple months ago and have been working my way through the episode. So I just wanted to call and say thank you. I adore you both so much. I recently did a huge move and drove cross country all the way from the West Coast, California to my new home on the East Coast in Florida. And I was a bit of a mad woman and I did the trip in two and a half days with three cats in the car. I binged Dark Poutine the whole way. So thank you so much for keeping me company and helping me keep my sanity. It's been super refreshing learning about Canadian history and Canadian true crime encrypted. I was very unfamiliar with almost all the episodes and I found them very fascinating and the research is excellent. So thank you so much. Keep up the good work and don't forget to Take a dookie in your dookie. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that one I really like. Take a dookie in my dookie, or or a toozy in my whatever. I don't know, but I love. You know what? I always find it kind of weird, but cool to think of somebody you know driving. Yeah, on a highway across the country, and my voice is on there on their speaker and trying to, you know, we're kind of keeping their, them company. And I think that's really cool. I was just going to say exactly that. It's exactly that. Like, it's so strange to me, you know, I started this thing um, with the idea that maybe our moms would listen, you know? <laughs> I don't, I don't think my mom listens. My mom can't listen either because it's too much. Sometimes. Uh, these episodes, though, <laughs> these Spooktober episodes have been pretty light. So tell your friends if you need lighter episode fodder, fair, um, then the dark poutine does do some lighter stuff. So maybe a little lighter poutine. <laughs> we, we, we're having yam fries instead of like potatoes. <laughs> All righty, let's move forward. Hey, Mike and Matthew. I just got done listening to your uh, latest episode. And when you mentioned the Muhaha and you were describing that creature, it just sent me back to my childhood and I had a, a nightmare about this tall, steep figure with long, black, greasy hair and leathery, wet skin, elongated fingers, and everything, and it just you described that creature in my dream, and it was chasing me through the woods in the fall of the year, and I just thought it was a pickle monster. So, and it's funny how you said that. But that's pretty much all I called to talk to you about. And I hope you guys have a great fall and have a great day, and don't forget to go poop in your tube. <laughs> there you go, um, the tickle monster. Oh boy, I don't know. I do you have a tickle monster in your life, Matthew? I'm your tickle monster, Mike. Oh dear. <laughs> oh I'm, dear. I, I'm going to start tickling you every time I see you now. Oh, please don't. I really don't like being tickled. I really pin, really I, do not like that. I get to pin you down and tickle you. Oh, it's it's traumatizing to me, Matthew. I have complex <laughs> PTSD because of people tickling me. Do you really? No. Oh. 
but I do have I have <laughs> complex PTSD for other reasons. But <laughs> but anyway, that's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we don't have any patrons or donut money donors to announce this week, but that's okay. Matthew's whimpering like a dog over there, but that's okay. We do record a little ahead of things sometimes, so we understand that, <laughs> you know, hey, maybe we recorded earlier today and we didn't have anything uh, Patreon or donut money donor related left over to deal with, so... That's not the case. But we love you, folks. Thank you. Thank you for being patrons and donut money donors regardless. And uh, listeners. And li- Yeah, just thank you for just listening, really. But be a Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Well, look at that. It is time to end the show. So... Until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. We will see you then. See you on the flip side. <laughs>